Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasad Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. This is James Martin, a professor of history at Marquette University. I'm here with... Lisa Lamson, and I am a Ph.D. student at Marquette. Lisa and I are going to discuss the value and limitations of a broad, synthetic approach to the, to the histories of children and childhood. And Lisa has a few questions. Yeah, so my first question is, what makes a historian take such a broad approach? I think it's kind of a, a challenge to do a book like this, both intellectually and, and logistically. I think anyone who's written a book covering so much would agree with this. I've admired a few books like this. Uh, Stephen Mintz's Huck's Raft, of course, is a classic survey of American childhood. Colin Haywood, A History of Childhood, childhood has had a couple of editions. It's uh, Childhood in the West since the Middle Ages. Peter Stearns's Childhood in World History, uh, which is a very small book, Rutledge, I think, uh, published it as a lot like uh, the book I ended up writing, which was a very short introduction uh, to childhood, the history of childhood uh, at Oxford. It was very short. It's 35,000 words, uh, which is a couple of good-sized essays, actually. Uh, and, it, and they wanted it to be a global childhood, not just uh, the United States, which is kind of my kettle of fish. Uh, so it was a challenge, again, to cram that much information into a very short book, but also to get outside um, my comfort level, which is also one of the benefits. Um, it's fun. Uh, it was uh, almost a... Uh, an exercise in research and in writing. I realized I could write 500 words a day for 70 days and have a draft. That's kind of what I did. Uh, and so there's a lot of reasons uh, to do it. Uh, but the most important one is that um, you're able to make very large statements about very small people. Can't help but say that. <laughs> um, that gets you outside the monographs that we are trained to write and on which we all rely when we uh, do a big book like this or a big concept book like this. Um, and, and so I think it's, it's uh, rewarding and challenging and that's the sort of thing one looks for at a certain point in your career. Um, so you said a few things the vi- um, that are sort of feeding into my second question, the make large statements about very small people. And that's kind of the benefit of this kind of book, but do you see any others? I think it allows you to find threads throughout history. Um, I'm not even calling them themes. They're more like threads. Um, as I'm not the only person to have said this, obviously, but, but children have always been children, but the nature of childhood has changed drastically over time. Um, and yet, if you take a big enough look, uh, if, you, if you pull back far enough, you can get through and, and not ignore, but avoid focusing on the details of certain children's lives at certain times and places and religions. Uh, there are vast differences in, in childhood uh, over the eras, the eons. Uh, but there are also threads that 
that have a place in how we think about children and childhood, I think. Um, as I said earlier, the monographs are what we base this on, and I love doing that kind of detailed research as well. Uh, but th these big picture uh, books allow us to find similarities or continuities, more importantly, I think, that we might not see otherwise. Um, the conversation about threads and themes is sort of what I'd like to address. In the History of Childhood class and in your introduction to this book, you talk about the layers of childhood and the history of childhood is taking and adding and removing. What were the ones that stood out to you? That's a good, uh, good point, and I, I kind of was referring to that, so I'll talk about this a little bit first. Um, one of the things that one does also find in a broad approach like this is that, firstly, nothing about childhood ever goes away. Um, it's, it's a layered history, I think. Um, in the American history, which I'm more familiar with, I think if, uh, a way to think about it is the way that people thought about discipline. Uh, and uh, child labor for that matter. Virtually no element of child discipline has ever gone away. Uh, it has been added to. If we think about the old Puritan you know, religion of uh, the stereotype, the not particularly accurate stereotype of you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, child type stuff, the use of physical uh, correction, that still exists certainly in the United States and elsewhere, but we've added to it other what we would call more liberal or more sympathetic or less physical certainly elements of, uh, of, of discipline. And I think attitudes about children working. Uh, there are still people, there are still children in child labor that, 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 that we would recognize as being child labor if, similar to the 1780s, to the 1860s, to the 1920s. Uh, today, but we've also layered on top of that the middle class protected childhood in which children aren't supposed to labor and are meant to be uh, protected from uh, that sort of responsibility uh, in the families. So I think the layering idea is really important for the broad approach too. The layers, I think, to get to your actual question, I think that is important, are important for the big picture that I came across. This is kind of a theme too, I think, is war. Um, I, I, my first book about childhood was about children in war, uh, the American Civil War, uh, and, and I've done a lot of editing and, and comment, commenting at conferences on uh, works on children in war. And I think, unfortunately, that is one of the themes uh, for childhood throughout history. Uh, and what's important is the layering of the ways children participate in war. They've always been victims, they're still victims. But increasingly, I think, over the centuries, they also become participants. Whether willing participants, uh, I think you can see in um, the democratic civil wars in France or the United States or other parts of the 19th and 20th century for that matter, um, the political element of wars are pretty easily transferred to children, and children are eager to adopt them, and so they become participants willingly, uh, all the way up to the you know, more, more present day where the use of child soldiers has become more of an issue. It's not that there haven't been child soldiers in the past, but as new constructions of childhood have emerged, uh, again, the protected uh, 
preserved childhood, long childhood, uh, is violated by having children fight in a, in a war. Uh, and that's become an issue worldwide uh, since the 1970s and 80s especially. And so I think one of the important layering effects of children's history and youth history is, is war, but because their experiences have broadened, uh, and they are both more engaged willingly and unwillingly than perhaps in the past. I think another um, layering effect would be the role of government in, in children's lives, and, and that's kind of an easy thing, I think, to, to point out. As governments have gotten more uh, involved in individuals' lives, they became more involved in children's lives, and in some ways, in the United States at least, uh, children programs for children were among the first state and federal programs created. Uh, that's a huge change over the centuries before, uh, but I think that the notion of child welfare reform and governmental expansion have gone hand in hand, but again, it's layering uh, attitudes about children, uh, experiences of children, uh, uh, to one, one after another. Uh, and so, again, this notion of of children being protected from government or government not having a role in children's life still exists. I think the anti-vax movement today shows an element of, of that. Uh, but, but there have been many, many, many programs that state and local and national levels created for children and youth uh, that provide additional layers of history. So we've talked about the benefits of this long, big-picture approach and the layers, but so much... Uh, that we've talked about is continuity. So what are the limitations of this big-picture approach? Well, you smooth off the rough edges of history. Um, I've, been, I've referred to the monographic approach before, the, the thing that we're all more comfortable with probably because we, we immerse ourselves in a time and place and a certain community. We're able to see literally every document related to that time and place in that community. Uh, we're able to be to talk with a great deal of confidence about the experiences uh, of, of those children, of those youth, and their parents, uh, or of that set of policies. With the broad approach, you lose some of that confidence. I think um, it's it's not a matter of not believing in what we're writing, but we're, um, we're there is a danger of overlooking significant differences in order to find those threads. Now, I think it's worth it, uh, uh, the, this, this genre of the, the, broad, um, the broad approach has some benefits to understanding the big contours of children and, and youth. Uh, but they, it's not a replacement. It's a parallel in some ways. It's a complement uh, to the more detailed looks at certain communities where uh, we really do find out I think more effectively the lived lives of children, for instance, uh, the ways they interacted uh, with parents, uh, how government's programs actually do affect individuals. Uh, when I did work on the Children's Civil War, for instance, my main big monograph about children, um, I was able to find out information through this really detailed look at letters from soldiers and children's literature and so forth about children's lives that during in wartime uh, that no one had been able to do before. Uh, and so I think the limitation of the broad approach is that you can't get at that kind of detail and the advantage of the 
uh, more, uh, not smaller, more in-depth approach uh, is that you're able to really get at the lives of children and their parents. So about this conversation between the detail versus this larger themes, you had titled one chapter The Invention of Childhood, and you focus on the 1924 League of Nations Declaration of the Rights of the Child. Why focus so closely on that, and how does it relate to this broader approach that you were trying to take in the text? Well, I liked it because it, it helped. Here's where the, the book becomes kind of a logistical element. You have to figure out a way of organizing in five little chapters uh, lots of history. Uh, and the, the Geneva Declaration of the Rights of the Child, which was created by the League of Nations or approved by the League of Nations in 1924, um, set out for the first time in an international body. The League of Nations had many limitations. It wasn't very powerful. Uh, it, it uh, of course, did not prevent the rise of the conflicts that caused World War II. Uh, but it was a serious effort to bring to people around the world peace, but also ways of mediating conflict. Um, and it took on, uh, at, the, at the instigation and advocacy of a number of uh, children's rights groups uh, in uh, Great Britain especially, uh, it, it tried to articulate what it was that society owed to children. And it's, it's some very basic things. It's the child must be given the means requisite for its normal development. The child is, that is hungry must be fed. The child that is sick must be nursed, and so on. The child must be the first to receive relief in times of distress. The child must be put in a position to earn a livelihood and must be protected against exploitation. The child must be brought up in the consciousness that his talents must be devoted to the service of his fellow men. That's it. There are five rights that children have. Uh, these are the responsibilities of uh, society and governments uh, to, to promote among children. There have been many declarations like this since that time, and I also like the fact that this is the first of these, um, of, this is their big picture version of what should, should happen uh, for childhood and for, for children. Uh, and the United Nations, the successor to the League of Nations, uh, have, has approved a number of much broader, much more detailed, much more legalistic sets of rights and responsibilities uh, over the years. And they range from things about landmines to child soldiers and, uh, and, and many other things. Uh, and so I, I think, I call it the, the, the year they invented childhood because it is the first effort to sort of summarize and capsulate, capture uh, the kinds of reform efforts, the kinds of attitudes that had been coalescing around child welfare reform since the 1830s, 40s, maybe even earlier than that, and certainly well into the 20th century. So it both reflects almost a century of child welfare advocacy, but also projects into the future the responsibilities of governments and societies, and parents for that matter, to their children. So this is one indication of you sort of using detail to do this, um, to bring about a larger point. So when did you, and you mentioned it was a logistical nightmare, mm -hmm. so when did you choose to come down from this long view and get into the details of children's lives or into the minutiae of the reform effort? Well, there, there's both a, you have, you have to have evidence to suggest, support things you're saying, of course, but there's also... 
and here's the logistical part of it. This is meant to be a global history, and so I had to provide details that represented in a fair way um, a number of different cultures. Again, I'm an American historian um, of the 19th and 20th centuries. That's what I'm very comfortable with. Uh, I've done some editing of things that got me outside of that sometimes. Uh, Western Europe I was okay with, some of the contours of, of children's history and editors about childhood. Um, I was completely lost when I got really outside of those those areas. And so my main research uh, in the secondary sources would have been about Asia, uh, Latin America, Middle East, in uh, uh, South Asia for that matter, uh, is where I, 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 of course, focused. Um, and so coming down from the big picture, you know, the heights of the thematic structure of this, uh, I had to show that how those themes played out. Um, and I guess the, 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 I think this is kind of what you're getting at, but one of the ways I did that was in visual, uh, visual uh, sources. Uh, one of the, my favorite little sources that I found uh, is something called a hundred boy motif in Chinese history. Uh, and this is something that um, was very symbolic, and it is, it literally it's a hundred boys uh, in all these ramifications. There are paintings, there are pottery, there are, there's a, there's a very fancy shirt that they found from a, 17th century tomb, I believe, um, that has 100 boys in a garden. And it looks like they're playing. What they're actually doing is becoming adults. They represent different responsibilities under Confucian ideals uh, of what an adult should be. And it's very much an elite uh, aspect. They're, they're learning. Uh, they're actually doing martial arts. Uh, they are playing some games as well. Uh, some of them are, are actually kind of pretending to be clerks. Uh, and so forth, and so uh, it's a it's it is a representation of childhood, and that these are little boys, and they're little boys doing childlike things, or at least doing things in a childlike way. But what they represent is the ideals of a society, the ideals what, what's expected of them, in fact, as they become both youth and adults. And it was it was just a great encapsulation, I think, of expectations. Uh, of a society for its children, but also the values of that society. Uh, and there are a number of examples of that. Children's Games uh, by uh, Bruegel. Um, I probably murdered that name, but Bruegel uh, is a more famous version. Uh, it's uh, about the same time, 17th century, uh, and it has a village full of kids doing all sorts of games, but many of them also represent um, Adult pastimes. I think they're having a wedding at one point. There's they're the, mimicking a baptismal. Yeah, yeah, and they're making fun of stuff quite often. Adult yeah. values. They have mass on. I mean, but some of the there's also just kids playing leapfrog. You know, they're, and, and the game with the the hoopy thingy. The hoopy thingy. That, <laughs> that famous old game, the hoopy thingy game. Um, yeah, yeah, and so and in fact, in the in the book, I actually um, use both of those to start off a chapter on uh, sort of early modern. Um, childhoods around the world. Uh, and so that's, that, that's an example of getting down to the detail. Unfortunately, some of the greatest detail I came to was uh, using the use of child soldiers uh, and the, the outcomes of warfare on children because it's uh, an extraordinarily present day problem. Uh, really has been since, I think really the World War has really marked a turning point in how children were engaged or engaged voluntarily in war. 
Uh, and so there's lots of examples uh, there. And so uh, the last chapter especially kind of becomes a history of children and warfare in the last 30 years. Yes. Uh, so one of the, I guess, main debates in childhood history is how to balance the idea of childhood versus and the written material versus the lived experience in such a broad approach how did you handle that probably not very well i don't know i mean it is that is the hard part is is uh, as i said you have to you have to you know descend from the heights from time to time and, and provide examples um, there were fewer examples in in a book like this of individual children the closest one could usually get is individual communities in which children lived. Uh, it's probably as, as detailed as I, as I could get. Um, I know in a, in a different kind of format, Steve Mintz's Huck's Raft, he has plenty of individual children, but it's a much longer book. And it's, 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 it's only the American <laughs> United States. It's, it's, a, it's a great book, uh, and he covers a lot of ground. But he is able to get down into the lives of children more than, in a, than most broad, broadly uh, pitched uh, books and so this kind of uh, a loss and I think that's you I, I think we do learn more about attitudes about childhood uh, which is kind of the other way of doing children's history as opposed to lived experience of children in a broad approach uh, than we do about uh, again individual children uh, in the broad uh, books but again it's kind of worth it to, to create this complement to the detailed works Um, just as a, because I like this question, what was your favorite story that came out of your research besides the paintings? Um, well, I borrow Linda Gordon's story uh, about the great Arizona orphan abduction to start out one of the, uh, one of the chapters. And it's a book I've used in class. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's about this uh, group of um, New York City orphans uh, being sent on an orphan train, uh, only it's not one of the official orphan trains, to a mining town in Arizona. Uh, and uh, they're, they're meant to be, yeah, they're Catholic kids. They're meant to be adopted. There's lined up adoptions with some Mexican-American families, uh, also Catholic in the mining town. And the middle-class white managers and their their wives basically keep them happening at gunpoint. And they kind of send the nuns packing. Um, some of the children are adopted into Protestant families. It, and, and so it's, it's a great story. It was an awful story, but it's a great story for, <laughs> for a historian uh, because it shows race and class and geography and child welfare reform uh, and commercial uh, expansion in the far west all come together in the lives of these kids. And that's a fabulous set of conditions that uh, that, that tells a lot about children's lives. And so I think probably, for my money, it wasn't a story I found. It's a story that uh, others have used as well. Uh, it, it, it was a very useful story for a book like this because it covers a lot of stuff, introduces a great deal of information in a very short short period of time. Um, and then as like a last question, would you recommend other historians take this approach? I think everyone should try to write a book like this uh, if they have time. Uh, again, personally, it was just sort of a, the next thing to do, and I got a chance to do it, so I did it. So it's a personally satisfying to do. It's kind of a, a pure form of scholarship. Um, you're not caught up in archival uh, detail. Uh, you're trying to think about 
you know, big issues and big questions, which we don't get a chance to do uh, very often. Um, I think that um, it allows historians uh, to create a dialogue about some pretty important things. Uh, they, they, a book like this or a series of books like this can, can give new life to those narrower histories in which they're built. And I think they can demonstrate in really compelling ways the value of studying children and childhood in terms of understanding the values and expectations that societies have uh, through time. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.